Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula, and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa. South Africa says diplomatic relations with Rwanda are still intact. Igad foreign affairs ministers meet in Ethiopia and Kenyan university lecturers go on strike. In economics, South Africa's parliament approves changes to main petroleum law. And in sports news, Brazilian legend optimistic of Brazil's chances of winning the 2014 World Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Former Libyan Prime Minister Ali Zidane has fled the country to Europe shortly after the parliament deposed him. Malta's Prime Minister Joseph Muscat says the, pla- the, pl- the plane carrying the Libyan former Prime Minister had a brief stop in the South European country to refuel before proceeding to another European country. He did not confirm Zidane's final destination. The Libyan parliament passed the vote of no confidence against Zidane on Tuesday after a standoff between the government and a militia group in the eastern port of Al-Sidra, which is controlled by the militants. The African Union has warned Sudan's government and rebels in the Blue Nile and South Kudafan states that they have until the 30th of April to reach a peace deal. The AU's Peace and Security Council says it has recalled on its negotiators to assist the parties to reach an agreement. Talks which began last month in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa after more than a year's break have made slow progress. A second round broke off on the second of this month after only two days of meetings with both sides blaming the other. A senior UN official has been denied access to the Ukrainian region of Crimea where he had hoped to carry out an assessment of the human rights situation. Ivan Simonovich is the Assistant Secretary General for, the human, for Human Rights. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujuric says the reasons given were the complexity of the situation on the ground as well as the impossibility of providing security for the UN delegation. Mr. Simonovich had very much hoped he could travel to Crimea himself. But as in all areas where access is denied, Mr. Simonovich will report on human rights challenges in Crimea based on sources including the diplomatic community and international and national organizations. The cross-examination of police forensic analyst Colonel Gerhard Vermeulen will continue when the murder trial of South African Paralympian Oscar Pastorius resumes in the North Houting High Court in the capital, Pretoria, this morning. Vermeulen is the 12th state witness to give evidence out of a possible 107 witnesses. The toilet door from the home of Pastorius in the cricket bat will remain center stage during cross-examination. Jacques Sienkamp reports. Defence advocate Barry Rue will continue his grueling cross-examination of Vermeulen about why certain parts of his investigation is outstanding and why he only focused on the parts that incriminated Pistorius. Yesterday, for the first time since the trial started, Pistorius showed up at the courtroom 20 minutes earlier than expected and came walking into the building all on his own. His usual entourage were nowhere in sight. 
it's expected that the prosecution will call a ballistic expert after Vermeulen steps down to testify about the trajectory of a bullet that were fired through the door. Nearly 8,000 lecturers in Kenya's 71 government universities begun an indefinite countrywide strike yesterday. The lecturers are demanding $50 million for increment of their salaries and house allowance, which they claim has been either misused or pocketed by vice-chancellors of various universities. James Shimanula reports from Nairobi. Kenya's university lecturers defied a court order stopping them from striking of unpaid increment of salaries and allowance. The order followed a petition filed by Interpublic Universities Council to stop the lecturers' industrial action pending negotiations with the government. Hours at the University of Nairobi where striking lecturers searched lecture halls and offices to flush out some of their colleagues who were found hiding after refusing to join them in the strike. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's Justice and Constitutional Development Minister Jeff Khadebe says South Africa's diplomatic relations with Rwanda are still intact. This follows a diplomatic fallout between the two countries after the murder of a former Rwandan intelligence chief, Patrick Karagea, and the recent raid on the home of another former Rwandan army head, Kayemba Nyamwasa, exiled in South Africa. South Africa deported three Rwandan diplomats and Rwanda retaliated by reportedly expelling six South African diplomats. Despite this, Khadeva says diplomatic relations between the two countries have not been affected. Zaline Merrington reports. Justice and Constitutional Development Minister Jeff Khadebe says South Africa will not tolerate foreigners who engage in illegal activities on South African soil. Rwandan and Burundian diplomats were expelled for violating the Vienna Convention and the Diplomatic Immunities and Privileges Act. Khadebe says the country will not be used as a platform to commit crimes. The South African government has taken a decision to declare persona non grata of certain persons from Rwanda and Burundi. As a South African government, we want to send a very stern warning to anybody anywhere in the world that our country will not be used as a springbok to do illegal activities. That uh, we are a constitutional democracy and that any individual or groups of people who abuse our human rights dispensation they will face the full might of the law. But he insists South Africa still enjoys good relations with Rwanda. There is evidence. Why we didn't arrest them in terms of these conventions? Uh, they are clothed. They are privileged. You can't arrest them. You can. It's a diplomatic uh, thing. As I answered, there are still diplomatic relations between Rwanda and South Africa. Our ambassador is still accredited in Kigali. 
the ambassador is still accredited here in uh, uh, Pretoria. What has happened is individuals from Rwanda and one from Burundi were involved in these illegal activities of which we are bound by our constitution and the law to take stand action against them. Meanwhile, Khadebe also says various measures have been taken, like deploying the Defence Force to secure South Africa's borders against cross-border crime and illegal activities. He says the JCPS cluster is also finalising policy development that seeks to address illegal immigration, deportation, illegal trading of goods and improve border control. Zaline Merrington, Parliament. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. U.S. Special Envoy to the Great Lakes region, Russ Fangold, has called on Rwanda and South Africa to solve their grievances through diplomatic channels. Fangold says the U.S. is very concerned with the ongoing fallout between Rwanda and South Africa. He made the comment in the Rwandan capital, Kigali, after meeting President Paul Kagame. Silvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. Russi Fengold, the President Barack Obama's special envoy to the Great Lakes region, arrived in Kigali from the DRC. His comments came amid diplomatic sour between South Africa and Rwanda. Following the expulsion of high-level diplomats from either country in an apparent reciprocal retaliation, it remains clear that the diplomatic ground between the two countries is not conducive. Speaking to the media shortly after the meeting with President Paul Kagame, he suggested the diplomacy as a potential tool in the revival of the normalcy between the two countries. We're very concerned about uh, the tension uh, that has uh, erupted between the two countries on a diplomatic front. We await the investigations uh, of any incidents of this kind uh, and want to make sure that these two countries uh, repair any problems that are occurring because they're both critical countries to the future of Africa and the, and the world. In relation to the peace and security of the Great Lakes region, especially in the Eastern DRC, which is home to squads of militia, including the FDRR, the U.S. Special Envoy to the Great Lakes region, supported military action against the FDRR, is saying it would be a right move for long-standing peace in the region. We talked about the need to take action against the FDLR, uh, and our pleasure that the, there was an announcement yesterday by the Democratic Republic, a more serious action is being taken against the FDLR militarily at this point. Last year, the Special Brigade to which South Africa deploys, together with the Congolese government army, managed to dismantle the M23 rebels from their bases. But the same contingent and the MONUSCO have already been blamed for not using the same force to confront the FDLR, which stands accusations of genocide in Rwanda and a series of other attacks in Rwanda. The FDRR together with the other militia in the Eastern DRC remains a potential threat to the thousands of Congolese refugees in Rwanda. The US Special Envoy says this remains a challenge to the international community. Many of them probably would like to return to, to their original homes in the DRC, but, but they don't feel comfortable yet in terms of the safety and how they would be treated. Places where people want to be, but the government here along with our help and the help of others in the international community are trying to make it uh, as good as it can be. 
Senator Feingold and President Porogame also discussed the possible repatriation of M23 rebels who defected to Rwanda last year. The rebels were defeated following a joint attack by Congolese army and a more offensive municipal brigade. Silvanus Kalimera, Channel Africa News, Kigali. Foreign Affairs Ministers from the countries that make up the Intergovernmental Agency for Development, IGAD, met in Ethiopia on Wednesday evening to discuss the agenda of an extraordinary summit scheduled for today to discuss the conflict in South Sudan. The summit is being held as fighting continues in South Sudan despite a ceasefire agreement. Koleta Wanjohi reports. The government of South Sudan and the rebel faction led by former Vice President Riek Mashar have failed to respect the cessation of hostilities agreement they signed in January this year to end hostilities. Following a continued deadlock of peace talks between the two factions, heads of states from the Intergovernmental Agency for Development, IGAD region, are to meet and discuss further. Ahead of the summit, the foreign affairs ministers from Uganda, Djibouti, Kenya, South Sudan, Sudan, Ethiopia and Somalia met Wednesday evening to set their agenda. The chairperson of the Council of the Ministers of IGAD, Tewodros Andanom, who is also the Foreign Affairs Minister of Ethiopia, explained that stabilization of South Sudan is key for the upcoming summit. I want to further underline the need for an inclusive political dialogue to be conducted and further request all stakeholders to take part in the negotiation process open-heartedly. It's my earnest hope that in this ex extraordinary meeting we shall explore all avenues that can help our brothers and sisters in South Sudan to help them address the problem amicably. Therefore, we require to examine thoroughly the ideas and proposals that are put forward for our consideration. Among the proposals that the foreign affairs ministers will bring to the discussion table of the Heads of State Summit includes finding a way to ensure that the cessation of hostilities agreement signed by the warring factions of South Sudan is implemented as soon as possible. Also expected to be put on as a main agenda is the aspect of regional stabilization force to be sent to South Sudan. The executive secretary of the IGAD, engineer Mahabub Ma'alim, said that the mediation process needs time. But from the opportunity that I see it time and again as I passed by during the negotiation processes, I could, I could feel the hardness with which our envoys were pushing. And that's where the key lies. I thank you, Your Excellency, your encouragement to the parties to come along and take responsibility for some of the actions. <coughs> for today that will have a bearing for tomorrow to reveals upon your advice and intervention. Hence, Your Excellencies, this is where the value addition of your wisdom differently is called for and counts and your intervention, advice and consideration is required. South Sudan plunged into conflict in December 2013 when a rebel faction led by former Vice President Riek Mashar launched attacks on the government of Juba claiming for political reforms. Kuletanjohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Africa's top CEOs, bankers from around the world, leading decision makers. The Africa CEO Forum, the event African business leaders can't afford to miss. The Africa CEO Forum, a priceless opportunity to connect with the key players in the game. The Africa CEO Forum, an unrivaled chance to expand your business network. The Africa CEO Forum, Geneva, 17th to 19th March, 2014. 
This ad was brought to you by Africa CEO and Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Forensic analyst Colonel Gerard Vermeulen will today have to produce evidence that he knows what he is talking about when it comes to interpreting marks on wood. Oscar Pistorius advocate Barry Rue asked Vermeulen to bring case notes of past cases he worked on with marks similar to those of a cricket bat and the wooden toilet door that Pistorius broke down to get to his girlfriend Rieva Steenkamp. Pistorius shot and killed Steenkamp in the early hours of Valentine's Day last year. He pleaded not guilty to a charge of murder. Lila Magnus reports. Oscar Pistorius' advocate, Barry Rue, asked Colonel Gerard Vermeulen to bring his case notes to court to show he has experience in interpreting marks left on wood. Vermeulen told the court he has more than 29 years' experience in forensic analysis and has done almost 1,400 forensic investigations. Vermeulen told the court the marks on the cricket bat match two marks on the toilet door if he stands on his knees. I just want to confirm that uh, me holding the bat was done in, a, in the most likely position for a normal position when the, someone was hitting the bat. I did not try and force the position. It was a normal position and you will see when I, when I demonstrated that uh, me kneeling down like that was to get into a normal position with a bat as can be expected. Repetitive Vermeulen that Pistorius would not have the balance to hit the door hard enough with a cricket bat if he was on his stumps. He told Vermeulen Pistorius had his prosthesis on when he broke down the door. Vermeulen, however, insisted it would be an unnatural and uncomfortable position for somebody to try and hit the door at that angle. So lower now, stand a little bit back. No, no, you don't have to bend your knees, just stand a little bit back and use your back. Put it now on the mark. What is it that you say? I say I'm in an unnatural position at the moment, my lady. Is it unnatural to you? Just do that again? position because I have to reach out. Would you go back and bring your body forward and tell me what's unnatural? What is unnatural about that? Uh, Mr. Pistorius would not be able to, to reach this, this much for... Uh, Why uh, not? Because, my lady... Okay, can you go back to the microphone? I'm of the opinion if we, if we take the, or do the investigation in isolation that we will be able to skew the, the findings at the end. Vermeulen admitted to the court that he could not explain a third mark on the door. Rue, however, had the answer. On behalf of Mr. Pistorius, we will present evidence that that mark was caused by a, the prosthesis kicking that door or making contact with that door. And the fabric of the sock was in fact still embedded and found and varnish of the door. Mm. On the uh, prosthesis. On the prosthesis. Uh, as I said, my lady, it, uh, I could not link it to the, to the cricket bat, so... Rue put a question mark over the way the toilet door was handled by the police after it was removed from Pistorius's house. Vermeulen conceded that the door yesterday had more marks on it than it had when he did his tests and that the shoe print on a door panel was no longer visible. But they, they, they're quite... Drastic mark, so to speak. It's quite significant, Invasive. yes. It's quite significant, yes, my lady. Were they there when you saw the door assembled and helped to assemble them? I think it's on the 8th of 
March 2013. Uh, and that is the picture I'm looking at, my lady. Uh, on this photograph, it doesn't seem like those marks are present on the door. Uh, my lady, now I think I can, I must admit, uh, the door and the bed was not exactly in the same condition as it was collected because it was already handled by several people, transported, whatever. Vermeulen must also today bring photos taken on 8 March 2013 at Pistorius' house to determine if pieces of the toilet door went missing during the investigation. The trial continues today. Lila Magnus, North Gauteng High Court. The North Gauteng High Court in South Africa, where the murder trial of Oscar Pistorius is underway, has heard that a large splinter of wood was missed when forensic analysts were reassembling the door. The athlete fired shots through, killing his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. Under cross-examination by Pistorius' lawyer, Barry Rue, police, police forensic analyst, Colonel Gerard Vermeulen said at first that he did not know what happened to the missing wood splinters. For more analysis of, of this, we spoke to Professor Shadra Guto, Director for the Center for African Renaissance Studies at the University of South Africa. So far, I think there's going to be a continuation of um, uh, the cross-examination today and we will get better clarification on what emerges from the evidence that has been uh, provided so far. But there were some contradictions um, and uh, gaps uh, yesterday. But be that as it may, I think it's important here to be able to say what is being established here is basically what was the, um, what is it that was used how was it used? Did Pistorius uh, have, was he on stamps or was he on prosthetic legs and so on in order to see exactly or to determine exactly the angle and the spot? But all of these are after the shootings had already taken place. And um, because of that, we are dealing here with a situation where already the actual uh, critical evidence of um, somebody having been shot and has been probably died at that time or was dying, uh, that is when the door was broken. It wasn't broken earlier. And there hasn't been any claim that he had broken the door earlier. So I think it is important to see the sequence of events immediately following the shootings that were fatal shooting. Um, and I think that, you know, they are critical part of the puzzle, but they are not decisive in themselves in uh, either indicating that uh, there was intention to kill or not. And now, Prof, with this in mind and the fact that uh, um, the defense is proving that a splinter was missed by the analyst, uh, Gerard uh, uh, um, Vermeulen, will this weaken the state's case uh, on their premeditated murder charge? Um, I, one doesn't know why a splinter on a door, which is being... Um, opened and broken after the shootings um, 
have already been done. No one has indicated that any of those splinters did kill uh, Statham. So, yes, it does put some uh, doubt about the thoroughness um, and the clinical nature on which the investigation should be done and all the evidence preserved. But in my view, it doesn't really go to the root of the whole question of um, the actual shooting and the intention for the shooting. Now, uh, with that, bearing that in mind, um, the state has called a few, a number of witnesses and uh, in proving that the athlete indeed intended to kill his girlfriend, what premeditated murder. So far, we've seen a lot of the witnesses being pushed to admit to the fact that there are inaccuracies in their statements. Is it too early to tell if the, the, the prosecution has a strong case against Pistorius? The prosecution so far has strong case, but it is not foolproof. And therefore, there are gaps within it which uh, needs to be filled in, and this is why there's this continuation of um, calling witnesses and hopefully uh, the gaps will be filled. And if they are not, um, the question is, has there been proof beyond reasonable doubt, even though there are certain gaps, or uh, are there serious doubts, which means it's a question of proof on balance of probabilities rather than what is required in criminal matters, which is proof beyond reasonable doubt. So it is still early, but at this particular point, I think the prosecution case is still strong. Now, Professor Guto, um, is it standard practice for a defense lawyer or an advocate to ask a, 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 a witness, he's done this before, um, to ask a witness for notes or um, inform, past information with regards a person, for instance, with uh, Colonel Gerard Vermeulen, he was asked to go back and retrieve um, other information or other uh, notes that he used in other cases um, to show that he is an expert in, in this regard with uh, regards to the issue of the door and, uh, you know, the, the dents that were made by, allegedly made by a bat or things like that to break down the door. Is it standard practice? I think it is something that a defense lawyer would ask, first of all, to establish whether this is really an expert witness. Uh, is it someone who has a record of expertise in what they do and has credible reputation in that regard? Uh, I think that's why the defense lawyer is really trying to ask for their notes and so on. But if there are no notes, that doesn't destroy the evidence that they are giving if they are credible on a scientific basis.
It's 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. And that was Professor Shadra Guto, Director for the Center for African Renaissance Studies at the University of South Africa, talking to us earlier. Today, in 1994, Lucas Mangope was ousted as President of South African Homeland Boputatswana. Mangope was deposed after he refused to allow free campaigning in Boputatswana as well as not wanting to take part in the general elections that was to be held during that year. Dr. Chad van der Vault was appointed as the territory's new administrator. But first of all, we turn our attention to the situation in Baputitswana, and on the line is the Transitional Executive Council's Mac Maharaj. Good morning, Mr. Maharaj. Good morning, you. May I begin by asking you what is expected from Ambassador Chart van der Valt in his, in his new role in Baputitswana? Effectively now, the governing authority is the South African government acting in conjunction with the Transitional Executive Council. Mr. van der Valt, Professor van der Valt, was appointed by us as the temporary and interim administrator. Now, his authority will come from the South African government who will be acting together with the TEC. His purpose is to revive the administration of the country and the area so that services uh, are resumed and uh, people return to work, uh, departments uh, necessary for delivery of services can begin to function. Secondly, We've also appointed the SADF under the authority of the South African government and the TEC to uh, ensure stability, law and order, and uh, to liaise, therefore, with the existing uh, structures and administration in that area. And that was ANC's Mac Maharaj, member of the Transitional Executive Council at the time. It's 8.30 Central African time and Anne Musa's up next with the headlines. Good morning. Former Libyan Prime Minister Ali Zedan has fled the country to Europe shortly after the parliament deposed him. Egypt's military destroys over a thousand smuggling tunnels under its border with the Gaza Strip as Cairo ties remain sour with the Hamas movement. And South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission to announce the total number of parties that have registered for this year's general elections today. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa's top CEOs, bankers from around the world, leading decision makers. The Africa CEO Forum, the event African business leaders can't afford to miss. The Africa CEO Forum, a priceless opportunity to connect with the key players in the game. The Africa CEO Forum, an unrivaled chance to expand your business network. The Africa CEO Forum, Geneva, 17th to 19th March, 2014. This ad was brought to you by Africa CEO and Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Nearly 8,000 lecturers in Kenya's 71 government universities began an indefinite countrywide strike on Wednesday, paralyzing learning for more than 250,000 students. 
The lecturers are demanding 50 million U.S. dollars in allowances and salary increments, which they claim has been either misused or pocketed by vice-chancellors of various universities. James Shimanyula was at the main campus of the University of Nairobi, where the strike started before spreading to other parts of the country and filed this report. Kenya's university lecturers defied a court order stopping them from striking of unpaid increment of salaries and allowance. The order followed a petition filed by Interpublic Universities Council to stop the lecturers' industrial action pending negotiations with the government. Hours at the University of Nairobi were striking lecturers, searched lecture halls and offices to flush out some of their colleagues who were found hiding after refusing to to join them in the strike. At one stage when uh, the lecturers were going round the university campus, they realized that some of their colleagues were hiding. Here they are trying to flush them out of the offices, those that refused to take part in the strike. 32-year-old John Okello was emphatic on what the lecturers want. We don't just want money. Money is a problem. They are given money. We need money. Kenyan authorities have said the strike is illegal, but Johnston Odanga in his early 50s does not think so. The strike cannot be illegal, it must be legal. Somebody cannot steal from you. When you go and ask him the money, he takes you to court. When I asked Odanga's colleague, 35-year-old Simon Wambua, why they staged the strike knowing well that the court had legally stopped it, he retorted. Then that one just shows that our cause have become elements of protecting the rich to oppress the poor. Cognizant of missing money that he and other lecturers would have been paid more than a year ago, weekly for Kusimba, aged 54, said. This is money that was stolen from workers of public universities. As the first day of the strike passed, the question that came to mind was whether or not the lecturers' industrial action succeeded. Here is Peter Kabugu, an accountant at the University of Nairobi. He too took part in the strike. The strike is a total success because all our members are out and we have paralyzed all the university's operations. Indeed, university operations were paralyzed because apart from the students missing lectures, more than 30,000 public universities' non-teaching staff stayed away. Also affected were some 300,000 self-sponsored students who missed classes. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. One of Africa's largest ICT services provider, EOH, says it believes that all businesses should take responsibility for equipping the youth with the skills they need to become employable. It says with millions of unemployed youth, governments alone cannot shoulder the burden of creating employment and businesses are obliged to step in to address the situation. EOH launched a youth job creation initiative two years ago, aimed at stimulating youth job creation. For more on this, Channel Africa's Ntlantla Matlang spoke to EOH Chief Executive Officer Asha Bobot. Yes, I think it's a very important uh, aspect of our lives 
Our belief in UH that the business role is way beyond just making money for, for shareholders. I think it's inappropriate for, for our society, for South Africa and for Africa. Uh, business must take ownership and responsibility for many other aspects, one of which is the creation of, of employment, more specifically the youth unemployment. We've got millions, millions of young people in South Africa and across Africa uh, that uh, uh, needs to be brought into the mainstream of the economy uh, to be employed, to be skilled, and to, to really contribute to society, contribute to economy, and contribute to the growth of, of and the development of Africa. Uh, the initiative which was launched uh, two years ago, as you said, uh, was aimed to work with our customers and business partners and to encourage them and assist them in taking young people into programs inside the business of learnerships and internships. Uh, we've got success with quite a few of our customers. At the same time as UOH, we also decided to listen to our own propaganda and do something about it. So about 18 months ago, we took 620 young people, uh, graduates and uh, uh, of, of colleges, uh, school leavers, etc., into the business, into a one-year training, development, coaching program across the organization. And uh, yeah, we're very, very happy and excited about the fact that 450 of those young people got permanent jobs at UH which is really exciting and surprised us. What we were surprised about is the level of skills uh, that exist and the talent that we have out there sitting just underutilized. Uh, we followed, followed it with uh, taking another 600 young people uh, back in November last year for the second round and uh, for another year program and we hope to to employ the majority of them at the end of the program. So all in all, we're probably going to get closer to a thousand young people that got employed in UH. And our message to the market out there, if one reasonably small organization like ours can create jobs for a thousand people, if all businesses across the country would do the same and bring in, take on young people, uh, economy will grow, uh, will stabilize the society, will do good for the youngsters, and funda fundamentally and ultimately for the benefit of business itself. You know, those are the future consumers of, of the products and services that we, that we produce. Uh, yeah, we, we are excited and uh, hopefully more people will, will do the same. Can you just touch a bit on how the youth actually get to be part of this initiative? Do you put the word out there to tertiary institutions or schools, or do you advertise on the website? Just tell us more about that. Uh, we've got uh, multi multi channels for, for it. We talk to to institutions, to colleges, FETs. We work with the different CITAs who contribute to funding for for this initiative. So government is involved in it. 
and there is funding from government available so encourage people to, to take advantage of it uh, uh, it is published uh, in our uh, in our website so yeah there's a multi-channel and we have many many more unfortunately applicants than we can take and uh, as sad as it may be at least we help some of them and then this initiative is just for South Africa for now? Or is it it's for South Africa for now, but uh, we see no reason whatsoever that this philosophy or this approach should not be, should not be part of throughout Africa. I think the level of unemployment and youth unemployment is probably similar in other countries, and I see no reason why it shouldn't be exactly, exactly the same. Uh, business must get involved. We can't just sit and, and, and hope that somebody will solve the problem. And ultimately, if, if there is no stability, a huge unemployment, it will affect business at the end of the day anyhow. So we might as well do something, never mind for others, but to help ourselves. That was EOH Chief Executive Officer Asha Bobot talking there to Nklantla Masangu. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, and it's 8.41 Central African time, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The African penguins' population continue to decline because of a variety of factors that impact on the species' livelihood. Southern African National Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds says climate change, oil spills, as well as habitat destruction in their colonies, including inadequate food to eat for the birds, is contributing to their current status. For more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Vanessa Strauss, from the Southern African National Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds. Well, the African penguin was recently reclassified as endangered. It's one of many seabird species in South Africa that has experienced a rapid decline over the recent years. Just to put it in perspective, in the early 1900s, there were between 3 and 4 million African penguins in the wild. And then at the turn of the century in the year 2000, there was about 200,000 penguins. And now today there's less than 21,000 breeding pairs, so that's about 60,000 individuals. So that means they've declined by more than 90%, and there's really been a drastic decline over the last 10 years as well. What would you say is the cause, or could have been found to be the cause, of the decline in the species population? There's been many causes for the decline of the penguin over numerous decades. In the early 1950s, 60s, eggs were collected, and for human consumption, it was a delicacy, and guano was also scraped from the islands, and this caused major habitat destruction for the birds that had a long-term impact on their breeding success. And then in the 80s and 90s, catastrophic oil spills continued to have an impact on the birds. But more recently, scientists believe that the shifts in the availability for food has a major impact on them. And this could also be made worse because of the competition with the commercial fishing industry. So at the moment, the biggest challenge for these birds is to find enough food to rear their offspring. And because of this decline in the population, risks such as oil spills then just become even more significant. The impact of the changing climatic conditions, how effective is it on the population of the species? 
You know, seabirds are regarded as indicator species of the health of the ocean. So that basically means if the penguins and seabirds are taking strain or the numbers are not doing well, it means that the ocean is not a healthy place. So we know that these birds really rely on orchard and sardine to be close to their breeding colonies. So even small changes in the temperature of the ocean can have dramatic impacts on these birds. They are fairly high up the chain in terms of where they sit as predators, they miss the predators, they're not right at the top, but they are very, very dependent on the fish stocks being healthy and there's plenty scientific evidence showing the impact of climate change on the health of the fish stock as well as the availability at certain times of the year. Countless campaigns have been carried out to save the species as well as intensify the situation with regards to conservation. What progress would you say has been made so far? You know, we know that the richest tool we have today is awareness and education, just making sure people are aware of the decline of the penguins and then also what it is that they can do. I think it's probably one of the steps that we do miss these days is really giving people ideas and tools about what it is that they can do. You know, and it's easy to think it's the big corporate companies or the governments that need to make the changes. And of course, they do have responsibility, but we as individuals can also make changes, you know, and it's just about making people aware about what they can do. For example, recycling does have an impact on the amount of plastic that is being used. So we know that oil is a major ingredient for plastic and the amount of by shopping locally, we are reducing the need for international shipping and traffic, thereby reducing the possibility of a catastrophic oil spill happening. And those are small, everyday things that all of us can do, and it's just about making people aware. So I think education and awareness campaigns do play a very important role as long as we give people tools about how they can actually make a difference. The breeding of the species, uh, how fast is it uh, so that uh, could see its population increasing once more? Well, the penguins can breed twice a year. So depending on the experience of the couples and the availability of food, they can breed twice a year. So if all goes well, they can have up to four chicks per year. But the availability of food for those young birds during the first year of their life That was Southern African National Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds, Vanessa Strauss, talking to Wandile Kalipa. Wisani Matebula up next with our economics update. Thanks, Lulu. South African Parliament has passed changes to its main petroleum law, giving the state a stake of 20% in new gas and oil exploration and production ventures. Industry analysts say this will discourage investment. The bill also gives the Mines Minister wide-ranging powers to place certain minerals in a value-added uh, category. The speed in passing the bill ahead of uh, general elections in May has alarmed petroleum operators such as Shell, Total and ExxonMobil. 
Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan has authorized a forensic audit of the National Energy Company. This comes after weeks of public uproar over an alleged $20 billion in missing state revenues. Former Central Bank Governor Lamido Sanusi wrote a letter last September to Jonathan saying that almost $50 billion in revenue from oil exports from January 2012 to July 2013 have not been remitted to the Federation's account. And China's ambassador to Zimbabwe, Lin Lin, says his country is willing to help the African nation establish its first platinum refinery as it attempts to boost its economy by processing the precious metal rather than exporting semi-processed ore. Zimbabwe, which holds the world's second biggest platinum reserves after South Africa, is demanding that companies mining the metal in the country should build a refinery there. Brett Wilkinson has more. Anglo-American Platinum, Impala Platinum Holdings and Aquarius Platinum have operations in Zimbabwe. The country's Chamber of Mines said in February that the refinery would need as much as $5.3 billion in investment in building the plant and boosting output to make it viable. Zimbabwe's Finance Minister, Patrick Chinamasa, led a delegation to China to seek concessional loans. The ministry will send another delegation next week. Financial indicators, the dollar trading at 10.86 South African rands at 8.77 Botswana Pulas and 5.91 Zambian Guaches. Also trading at 0.60 to the British pound and 0.72 to the euro commodities. Gold, $1,365. Platinum, $1,468. And Brent crude oil, $107.54 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Thank you, Isani Msibudi Makura. Up next with a sports update. Thank you, Lulu. Good day, sports fans. And starting off with soccer news, Brazil legend Pele is optimistic about Brazil's chances of winning the upcoming FIFA World Cup in June. The former World Cup winner has outlined teams like Germany and Spain as Brazil's biggest rivals for the trophy. Brazil have been drawn in Group A with Mexico, Cameroon and Croatia. They opened their World Cup account against Croatia on the 12th of June in Sao Paulo. On to local soccer news, Valdemir Vemosovic got his Orlando Pirates reign off to a winning start with a 1-0 victory against Morocco Swallows at the Dobsonville Stadium on Wednesday night. Kermit Rasmus scored the only goal early on the game and in the game in which Pirates dominated, though Swallows almost equalized late, but Senzo Miwa's heroics made it impossible. Pirates captain Akile Khwati says it was a tough match, but is happy with the outcome. Tough, you know, it's not over until it's over, you know, um, and we said we'll fight until the last second of um, the season and, you know, we had the result today, but if they lost, obviously, you know, for us is to make sure that we go to the game and make sure that we win the game. Meanwhile, Salo's head coach, Zekama, says there was no justice after his team lost 1-0 to Pirates. 
complete injustice. No justice at all in the result. I think, um, but you know, that's football. Unfortunately, there's no justice in this game. I thought overall we deserved at least a point. Um, Pilots, we knew were going to come at us. They're a quality team. First half, they had two or three good chances. They hit the post twice. Let's be fair as well. But I think the second half, we completely dominated Pirates. We were the better team. Uh, and, and that's the difference sometimes between winning and losing. But uh, I'm very proud of this performance. And I think, and I just said to our players, this, on this performance, this is the last game we've lost this season. Because there's, it's impossible that we can lose another game playing the way we did. There's a lot of positives to take out of this match. I'm obviously delighted that uh, on the performance, we did well. The victory sees Pirates move up to fourth place while Swallows make it seven matches without a victory and slide down to 11th position on the APSA Premiership blog. And on to tennis news, Sensilai Waranki's first ATP tournament since his Grand Slam win at the Australian Open ended with a three-set loss to South African Kevin Anderson in the fourth round at Indian Wells on Wednesday. Anderson, who's ranked 18th in the world and seeded 17th in the First ATP Masters tournament of the year booked his quarterfinal finish with a 7-6-4-6-6-1 victory over, third se- over the third-seeded Swiss. Anderson ended Warangi's perfect 2014 run, a year he opened with a title in Chennai. This was then followed by his championship run in Melbourne that included victories over three straight top ten players, Novak Djokovic, Thomas Berg, as well as Rafael Nadal. Waranke's exit ended the possibility of a tasty All-Swiss quarterfinal between him and Roger Federer, which would have had an added twist since, he, since this week marks the first time Waranke is contesting a tournament as the number one player from Switzerland. And finally, in cycling news, Nolan Hoffman, the winner of the 2014 South Africa Cape Argus Pick and Pay Momentum Cycling Tour, says he wants to remain loyal to those who gave him a chance. Nolan has had the opportunity to ride for a number of international professional teams, but he says he still has unfinished business in South Africa. The immediate goals would be to become national champion on the road, on the elite level. I've been... I've been uh, under 23 champ in 2007, but I think um, to, to put on the green and gold as an elite, that would be the cherry on the cake. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice on the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. South Africa says diplomatic relations with Rwanda are still intact. Igad foreign affairs ministers meet in Ethiopia and Kenyan university lecturers go on strike. 
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za, follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa One, or send us an SMS to plus 2782 Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Metafix with Living Dafour.
try 